Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hello and welcome to the Quillette podcast. My name's Toby Young and I'm an Associate Editor. One of the most frequently written about subjects in Quillette is racism. As a white male, a cishet white male, no less, I'm never going to win a medal in the Oppression Olympics. But am I racist? I like to think of myself as colourblind. I judge people not by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character, to paraphrase Dr Martin Luther King. But is colourblindness itself a form of racism? That's certainly the view of Eduardo Bonilla Silva, the president of the American Sociological Association, who's written a book called Racism Without Racists, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America. The reason claiming to be colorblind is racist, apparently, is that it lets people like me off the hook. We absolve ourselves of any responsibility for racial inequality and blame the racism of others, or worse, imagine that racial inequality might have a variety of causes, of which racism is only one, and perhaps not even the biggest one. In the eyes of Bernillo Silva, who's also a professor of sociology at Duke, that ends up contributing to the problem, not addressing it, because all white people are in fact racist, systematic white racism is the sole cause of racial inequality, and the only way to do something about it is if white people acknowledge their racism and check their privilege. Indeed, on some American college campuses, claiming to be colorblind is classed as a microaggression. This idea that all white people are racist and denying it is an expression of that racism is disturbingly reminiscent of the evidence used to convict women of being witches in 17th century Salem. Not a witch, you say? But denying you're a witch is a sure sign that you're a witch. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I rest my case. This catch-22 form of reasoning has recently been elevated to the status of a psychological theory by a critical theorist called Dr. Robin DeAngelo. She's not a psychologist. Her PhD was in the field of multicultural education. But seven years ago, she came up with the term white fragility to describe the defensive psychological state white people are plunged into when told they're racist. In Quillette recently, we published a piece by Jonathan Church, an economist and a contributor to the Good Men Project, questioning the evidential basis of white fragility theory. I spoke to Jonathan for the Quillette podcast and began by asking him to describe the theory. Well, it, the notion is, you know, as I understand it, the brainchild of a sociologist who's named Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And perhaps the best way to kick that off is just to quote her from, from uh, what I believe is her seminal paper on the topic. And she writes that white fragility is a state in which even a minimal amount of racial stress becomes intolerable triggering a range of defensive moves. You know, they include an outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. And these behaviors, in turn, function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. Now, that sounds like a lot of academic verbiage, and 
I guess to some extent it is. I think the basic point that she wants to make is ultimately that racism is not so much about explicit beliefs that uh, white people consciously hold about people of color, but about implicit or unconscious biases that themselves sustain what she would call institutional racism or institutional inequities in the distribution of social resources. And just to sum it up, in an article that she wrote for the Good Men Project, you know, she says the most effective adaptation of racism is the idea that racism is conscious bias held by mean people and that we simply do not understand how socialization and implicit bias work. So basically, white people don't know they are racist, don't like to be called racist, and therefore exhibit psychological uh, defense mechanisms, which I would think are, we all know to be common. Okay. Um, so it sounds like she's taking it for granted that all white people are racist, albeit for the most part unconsciously so, and that if white people on being confronted with this news don't embrace it and immediately renounce their white privilege or agree to undergo some sort of tests and therapy and so forth, that they're suffering from some sort of personality disorder. Is that an unfair characterization? Um, to me, that is a reasonable summary. I don't know if I would say personality disorder. If that was, if that's, those are the words that I would use. I prefer psychological defense mechanisms. But I think that you've captured the, the basic point. Okay, so does that mean that she's really preaching to the choir and therefore doesn't have to flesh out her underlying assumptions that all white people are racist? Or does she, as part of defending this theory, defend that hypothesis as well? You know, it's an interesting question. She writes in this paper that whiteness studies, quote-unquote, begins with the premise that racism and white privilege exist in both traditional and modern forms, and I'm more or less paraphrasing her, and that this field seeks not to prove it, but to reveal it. And that is, to me, a very revealing statement and really kind of gets to the heart of some of the problems that I've had with this notion. And I guess the way to sum it up is, as stated, that is a classic beg-the-question logical fallacy mm -hmm. where you assume the conclusion in the premise and that should otherwise initiate a chain of reasoning that leads to the conclusion. In other words, it's circular reasoning. Mm -hmm. So this focus on revelation over proof is an objection that someone coming from a an objective, logical perspective, which I guess, you know, is objectivity is one of the things that supposedly manifests white fragility, but anyway, would raise, which you would perhaps dismiss as yet another manifestation of white fragility. But to your question, if that's the approach that you're going to take, that is revelation over proof, then I guess, yes, it really comes down to preaching to the choir. Yeah. So if I'm understanding this correctly, Jonathan, um, one of the weaknesses and strengths of white fragility theory is that if you try and engage with Robin D'Angelo or any of her followers by questioning 
whether in fact all white people are racist. And you could point, for instance, to the unreliability of the evidence thrown up by the implicit association test. She wouldn't respond by defending the IAT or drawing on other sources of evidence that white people are all racist. She would just say, now, why are you denying that? What is it about that claim that you are finding so difficult to process? What does that tell us about how white privilege works? Something along those lines. And that's both a strength and a weakness in that um, it's a weakness in that it's going to be difficult to persuade people that they're suffering from some kind of psychological malady if they don't accept that they're racist, if you can't first convince them that they're racist. But at the same time, you can imagine lots of people feeling a bit boxed into a corner when being confronted with this accusation that they're simply in denial by someone who's refusing to engage in an analysis of the sort of original assumptions underlying the theory. Yeah, I don't have any objections to what you're saying. The way I processed the dichotomy between strengths and weaknesses is to to say that the weakness is that the science doesn't support it. There are numerous problems with the implicit bias paradigm that I've encountered in my own review of the psychology literature, as well as a blockbuster paper in January 2017 by Scott Lillianfeld on some of the shortcomings in the uh, microaggression research paradigm. So the weakness is that the science doesn't yet seem to support the implicit bias paradigm, but the strength is more of a rhetorical issue where you can essentially blithely dismiss any critique as an instance or manifestation of white fragility. And so it becomes, like I said in this piece I wrote, something like back in the 20th century, say in Maoist China, where you would have uh, any kind of attempt to critique communism or socialism or whatever as simply, quote-unquote, bourgeois. It's a rhetorical strength, but it's conceptually and empirically weak. Okay. Do you want to just briefly summarize what the problems with the bias paradigm are and what the problems are with the implicit association test? Well, so, you know, as I said, I'm an economist, not a psychologist, but I did start to read the psychology literature on unconscious prejudice. And I discovered that the literature on unconscious prejudice or implicit bias or whatever it is you want to call it is, you know, maybe to put it somewhat positively, is embryonic at best. Uh, So I mentioned the paper by Scott Lillianfield, which raises a host of important questions and concerns like embedded bias researchers, uh, base rate neglect, if you're familiar with Bayesian reasoning, non-random samples, the uh, failure to identify false positives, negative emotionality as an alternative explanation, so on. Uh, His basic point is that the conceptual and empirical foundations of the paradigm are simply not well established and that, you know, he does not deny the persistence of racial insensitivities. I don't think any reasonable person can, but the literature under underlying the quote unquote microaggression paradigm is simply at this point not convincing. Now, with respect to implicit bias, uh, I came across the writings of these two psychologists, among others, Philip Tetlock and Gregory Mitchell who have written that social psychologists, quote, quote, social psychologists have devoted a great deal of effort to measuring this elusive construct, but, quote, recent 
work underscores both the psychometric flaws of these mes measures and the weaknesses in claims that they predict behavior in realistic organizational settings. And then summing up the literature on the implicit association test, they write, and I'll just quote directly, on issue after issue, there is little evidence of positive impacts from the IAT uh, research, uh, implicit association test research. Theories and understandings of prejudice have not converged as a result of the IAT research. Bold claims about the superior predictive validity of the IAT over explicit measures have been falsified. IAT scores have been found to add practically no explanatory power in studies of discriminatory behavior, and IAT research has not led to new practical solutions to discrimination. Okay. And I think that that's enough to make the point. Yeah. So the claim that you're making is not that white people don't suffer from various forms of unconscious bias, but the evidence that they do that's been presented so far is pretty threadbare. Exactly. Given how threadbare the evidence is, why do you think that the concept of unconscious bias and the notion that all white people are racist and ought to undergo diversity training, sensitivity training, and so forth. Why has that been bought into? Why has it achieved such extraordinary purchase, not just in the academy, but in the corporate sector as well? We saw that recently with um, Starbucks responding to a complaint about um, racist treatment of a customer by announcing that they would send all their staff on racial sensitivity training, diversity training, and so forth. Why do you think it's managed to become such a powerful, pervasive, ubiquitous, influential concept, given how threadbare the evidence is that it actually exists? Well, you know, that's a, a very um, important and very broad question. It's probably, and I always hesitate to venture into speculation about wide-scale issues like that, but what I would draw upon is the writings of, a, of someone named Lawrence Blum, who's a moral philosopher, and I actually find him to be one of the more careful thinkers that I have encountered in the literature on, on racism and so on. And he makes a, a case uh, which is worth thinking about for what we call moral asymmetries of racism. And that is the idea that discrimination against blacks is worse than discrimination against whites simply because of the historical injustices and, and the legacies of, at least in the United States, of slavery and, and Jim Crow, and basically the injustices associated with discrimination against blacks. And so one can understand, to a large extent, the greater energy that progressives devote to correcting the discrimination against racial and ethnic minorities. And, you know, that's looking at it from a reasonable philosophical perspective. I encourage people to read Lawrence Plum. I think he, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything he's saying, but he's at least a clear thinker about this. But that, that prompts another question, uh, Jonathan, which is that if there's very little evidence that people's behavior improves and they become less discriminatory, less prejudiced after undergoing diversity training and so forth. If that doesn't actually improve things, if progressives are intent on trying to improve things for perhaps the reasons you just articulated, 
why wouldn't they look in greater depth and more forensically about whether the vast resources being spent on diversity training and um, having people take the IAT in sort of therapeutic settings and so forth. The amount of money that Starbucks and other corporations are spending on this. I mean, I understand it's something like an $8 billion a year industry in the United States alone. If there would be much better uses of that money, if it could be spent in a way which actually reduced racism, made people less discriminatory, less prejudiced and so forth, well, why aren't progressives focused on that? Why are they taking this kind of snake oil solution at face value if their real concern is to actually help poor black people who are being discriminated against? Well, you know, it's an interesting question from an economic perspective about just basically the costs and benefits of various approaches to doing this. And, you know, I have not done a lot of thinking about the actual value creation associated with various ways to approach this issue. I think there's very much a lot of uh, value to, you know, I have a relative who's very, very involved in, in this sort of thing, and, and I, I'm not familiar with a lot of the details, but grassroots attempts, you know, I guess the point I'm getting, try, trying to get at is that what I was highlighting by invoking this notion of moral asymmetry is that the data on racial inequalities are clear. You know, in other words, white people on average fare better than racial and ethnic minorities, you know, wealth, income, employment, whatever. What's not so clear, to me at least, is what to do about that. And so whether there is this, you know, as you're pointing out, this immediate propensity to address it in terms of implicit bias, white privilege, and so on, and white fragility or whatever. And perhaps some of that is due to the fact that, and this might be where there's some utility in the notion of fragility, is that people who happen to be white make a lot of bad arguments. They do get worked up, tongue-tied, offended, whatever. And D'Angelo has presumably encountered a lot of this over her years, many years of, of uh, engaging this issue. And I would not be surprised to learn that she had, or I, I don't doubt that she has, that, of course, as we've been discussing, does not negate the fact that the evidence is not there. So I guess the short answer is I don't know. It's an interesting, very interesting question from the standpoint of an economist to actually do the, you know, to measure the opportunity cost, if you will, of diversity training and so on that is based on this implicit bias paradigm versus other approaches. And I don't know what those other approaches would be because, you know, this is not necessarily my, my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. When you published your piece in Quillette, were there any responses along the lines of the response that, well, you would question white fragility theory because you're a white racist and actually questioning the theory is just a symptom of the condition being described by the theory. Did anyone respond yeah. like that? So this article was prompted by a comment. I have a lot of progressive friends, a lot of progressive family members, and I've written a, num you know, a number of articles about things like confirmation bias in the social justice movement and the specter of Marxism haunting the social justice movement and so on. And I, you know, I just shared some of these articles with, with a relative. And the response I got was, you know, why, why do you get so uptight about, you know, white privilege and white agility and so on, you know, encouraging me to sort of become more familiar with this. And so I wrote this piece and I basically get the same type of response. And I just want to emphasize, you know, this is all about the Socratic method for me. My interest in this is approaching this from sort of a 
And I guess actually, ultimately, you can trace it back to my study of behavioral finance, uh, studying for the CFA, learned about all sorts of things that get in the way of rational investment decision making, confirmation bias, conservatism bias, base rate neglect, availability bias, and so on. And so this would come to mind when I was coming across white privilege and white fragility. And, you know, I figured, you know, if I, if I study these for terms and learn, I'd be better for it. But then I would review the literature and the writings of people who were writing about this. And I just found the thinking very unclear, uh, very wanting. You know, as I said, I can think about it in terms of probabilities. White people, on average, fare better than racial and ethnic minorities. The Harvard economist Roland Fryer has, came out with a study a year or two ago about how black people are far more likely to suffer as the police and so on and so forth. So in terms of probabilities, it was it was clear. But in the broader discussion, there was just an attempt to explain this, uh, these problems in what, I, what struck me as broad ideological terms, white privilege, white, whiteness, so on, microaggressions, implicit bias. But in, doing, in attempting to do so, the thinking struck me as sloppy, propensity to make type one errors, false positives, base rate neglect, omitted variable bias, confirmation bias. And then there's the conceptual issues. What is white privilege? If we think of it, we think of it in terms of the uh, classic Peggy McIntosh paper, uh, where she comes up with like 46 or so examples. But in there, she draws this distinction between privileges worth having and privileges not worth having. So, you know, you walk into a store and you're not followed by the police. That's a privilege worth having. If you, you know, the ability to make disparaging remarks about people of color is a privilege not worth having. And that's fine. But what you end up coming up against is the distinction between rights and privileges. Now, should we be talking about reducing privilege, you know, the notion of check your privilege or expanding rights? And so all this say, I would re I would raise all these concerns and I just meet with pushback, hostility. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd share my article. And so I got this sense that progressives simply were not interested in any kind of critique that challenges the main narrative. All critiques are simply manifestations of, of white fragility. And it was the same thing when I, when I shared this article. And yet there are critiques that you made. As I said earlier, there's this in just classic circular reasoning in her seminal paper on white fragility, where she talks about whiteness studies, beginning with the premise that white privilege exists and is working to reveal it rather than prove it. It's classic circular reason. And just to finish up, I made this point to a relative of mine. And the response I said I got was, you know, emphasizing the importance of logic. And I get the response, whose logic? Your logic? And I just thought to myself, I mean, if it gets to that point, then we really have no real standard by which we can measure truth and knowledge. It just comes down to a shouting match. And whoever's voice is louder is what matters. That's not a recipe to me for social justice. And it is the standard response that I get. Well, that's not surprising. But did anyone produce a more thoughtful, grown-up response? Did anyone actually respond to some of the points you made about the shortcomings of white fragility theory and say, well, actually, here's a defense of the theory which responds to, which takes into account your critique? Well, I have not myself encountered one. I'm very open to the suggestion that there are kernels of truth to this. You know, I only have so much time with a with a job and family and other obligations. But as of now, I have not come across any um, alternative formulations of the, of the theory that have stronger conceptual or empirical grounds. Right. 
Well, that's disappointing. I mean, I guess really, you know, look, I'm an economist, right? And, you know, another way that I've been told is, you know, look, white privilege, white fragility, this is 101 stuff. I mean, you just got to accept it, you know? And so when I think about that, I say, well, okay, if you go to an econ 101 class, you learn about the law of demand and you should just accept it, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe you can have an upward sloping demand curve. You know, it's called the gift and good snob appeal. And so theory is a framework. It's not a holy grail of knowledge. And I don't get the sense that progressives are interested in entertaining thoughtful discussion about data, logic, reasoning, whatever, that does not fit their narrative. Yeah, um, I get that impression too. Well, look, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. It's been uh, really good to talk to you, really interesting to hear more about your piece. And I hope you'll continue to contribute to Colette in the future. Thank you very much. I, uh, I was very uh, grateful to be able to uh, participate. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.